Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Dad. Yeah. For dinner tonight, what do you want? I can bake you some chicken. Yeah. Uh... We can have tomato and cheese mac, yeah. or uh, we can throw out all the rules and we can do breakfast for dinner and I can make some egg, sausage, and toast. You want breakfast for dinner? Yeah, why not? Break all the rules, two bachelors? Sure. I'm Frank Bruni. That was my dad. And this is The Argument. in with them and uh, I like to add some uh, some cheese and uh, I hope he's uh, I hope he's down with that uh, we will find out Michelle and Ross are off this week so I'm taking over the show I'm recording today from my dad's house just outside New York City he's 85 years old and I've been taking care of him since the country went on lockdown oh you're gonna help set the table no, you've already done it. Some ice. I just I just can't see having um, the question of whether red or white wine goes with scrambled eggs, I think, is answered by neither, right? I, I think not. Too. Yeah, awesome. I, I, could use, I could use a night off. Right. You feeling good about this choice of scrambled eggs for dinner? Absolutely. You sure? I love it, yeah. All right, I'm feeling a little pressure here because I don't I'm know that I've ever... Don't feel it. I love it. All right, you're going to have to be kind in your judgment, okay? Frank, don't worry about it. <laughs> I love it. And I... Whatever. Okay. Helping my dad is a small part of the larger story of people helping one another right now. I think it's almost good. Mm -hmm. I think times like this bring the populace together. On my podcast this week, in fact, my colleague Gina Belafonte and I are going to talk about that, what we've learned about New York, uh, which she writes about, and and through New York, and as a microcosm, with New York as a microcosm, you know, what we're learning about America, the bad and the good. Times like this make us think more and make us appreciate more what we have. My colleague, Genia Belafonte, has been writing about this. She's the Times' big city columnist, weighing in on the culture, the politics, the anthropology, really, of New York City. She's also a dear friend, which makes me doubly excited to have her on the argument to talk about how the pandemic is straining and changing our society. Genia... Let's start here. You've seen the city respond to many disasters. What's different about New Yorkers' response to the coronavirus? Well, I'll tell you, it it, it feels quite primitive. Uh, nobody was really expecting um, a virus, uh, an, infect, an outbreak of infectious disease. Since 9-11, if you've lived in New York these 20 years, you worried about getting 
killed in the subway from a bomb? Are you worried about sarin gas being, you know, um, unleashed in Grand Central Station? So this really comes out of the blue and people are in shock because our lives are so very different and we don't know what to expect in the coming months. We have ha- we had some experience with Sandy. Again, I think that when Sandy hit New York, people thought, well, these hurricanes are things that happen in southeastern Florida, you know, in Mississippi. People were shocked by that. And it gave us some sense of disaster preparedness, but really, really, we were not in any way, shape, or form ready um, logistically, strategically, psychologically to deal with what we're dealing with now. Well, we don't know what the recovery from this is like, right? I mean, we we knew that with the hurricane, as time went by, we'd rebuild and the disaster would kind of recede in the rearview mirror. We don't know what we're going to be dealing with two months, four months, nine months from now, right? Exactly. I mean, we've had a, a, a tremendous loss of jobs already, the predictions, the optimistic predictions for the year from city officials are a loss of 475,000 jobs in New York City. Interesting note is that after 9-11, uh, the, we lost in the first three months after 9-11 about 430,000 jobs. So that's similar. And However, we were already in an economic downturn then, and we plummeted into a recession after 9-11 in the city. I want to come back to how the city does or doesn't recover and the and the various economic implications. But first, I want to talk about your most recent big city column from last weekend, because it was something of a viral sensation, hugely, hugely right. read. Uh, it was about Joe Joyce, the owner of a beloved bar in Brooklyn. Can you tell us about him and what happened to him? Yeah. So Joe Joyce, I had heard about through a close friend and neighbor named Eddie Joyce, uh, who lives on my block in Brooklyn. And I always ended up in conversations with Eddie about his dad, who was a very interesting character politically, because he was very conservative, Trump supporting, but progressive in many ways in terms of his social ideologies. He owned a bar, popular bar in Bay Ridge. He was a very devoted listener to Fox News. Uh, and his kids said, please don't go on this cruise to Spain, which he had planned for March 1st with his wife. And he wasn't quite convinced that the coronavirus was a big threat. And he went to Spain, came back two weeks later, uh, got sick around the 20th of March or so and and died pretty quickly, died in April. What, what do you see as the, the obvious and the less obvious morals of his story? Well, I think, you know, the obvious one is that we are you know, we are slaves to the partisan news sources from which we get our information. I think, you know, this affects both the right and the left, obviously. Um, And there was a real distrust. uh, You know, there is a distrust of science on the right, certainly. And I believe the, the less obvious lesson in his entire story is really that people are incredibly complicated in their politics. We tend to caricature people. And we have to really learn to look and appreciate and understand understand people's complexities because Joe was not anyone you could easily categorize. You know, part of what I I loved much about your column, but part of what I loved about it was that very theme, that very element. Uh, It wasn't right there at the top, but as you went along, you took great pains 
to write about the fact that, you know, while Joe was a big Trump supporter, while he was a big watcher of Fox News, um, he was also someone whose bar became a place where gay and straight mingled together happily. He was someone who gave uh, to organizations that represented disabled children. Um, He was, in fact, a very, very generous sort of small-time philanthropist in his own way. Um, I think, and I'm curious for your thoughts on this, that if we are going to get through this pandemic as a country, we have to learn to see each other across the political divide in much more nuanced ways. And and to me, your column was a great encouragement of that. Yes. I mean, thank you. I, I do think, you know, obviously the rift was so huge, as you and I have talked about before, the rift was so huge before before all this, um, and it's getting, um, you know, deeper and more severe. And to really try, you know, this involves really talking and getting to know people. And many of us live in these very politically isolated enclaves, either in coastal cities, you know, in rural red state places, and we don't meet um, and talk to and have intimate conversations with people who believe things different from what we believe. And one great thing about New York is, you know, in certain neighborhoods, you can get that kind of conversation going. And that's really what we want for the rest of the country, these kinds of conversations. No, at its best, that's exactly what New York is. But New York is also a place, as you've written, and I want to turn to this, it's a place where you see a specially vivid manifestation of the class divide. Um, And that has been something that's really come to the fore during this pandemic. I want to quote from a column you wrote right at the start of the lockdown in New York City. And the the headline was, The Rich Have a Coronavirus Cure, Escape from New York. And you wrote this, broad-scale emergencies never fail to reveal the fault lines in the American class system. And it was suddenly clear that well-off New Yorkers were going to go about the business of combating the coronavirus differently, with more than fortitude and Purell, because they had a powerful inoculant, secondary real estate. <laughs> Talk a little bit more about that and how, and in this sense, I think New York is both a microcosm and a magnifying glass for the whole country. Talk about how you've seen the class divide writ large during this pandemic. Absolutely. It's 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 a really interesting phenomenon because, you know, you go in, in these wealthier affluent neighborhoods of New York, they're ghost towns. You know, you walk around the Upper East Side or or Brooklyn Heights, and these places are empty because people have fled. People have rented houses if they don't actually own houses, you know, in beach places on the East Coast. Um, and so we're seeing that flight at the same time that you're seeing this massive unemployment, you know, waiters, dishwashers, uh, half of hotels in New York City are not operating. And you see people suddenly with no reserves of savings, just flat out in the context of a city that had some of the highest rent and rent burdens in the in the country. So, you know, where do we really, where do we go from here? Well, well where do we go from here? How does that play out in New York? You, As you said, there are many, many New Yorkers um, who, who their savings have been wiped out. They're in industries that if those industries come back, they're going to come back very sluggishly. Are those people able to remain in the city? What does the city need to do and what can it do to accommodate them and make sure it doesn't end up kind of moving ever ever further into the realm of a gilded theater for the rich? Right. You know, there are nostalgists who wish and crave for the creativity and vitality and grittiness of New York in the 70s. And the question is, are they going to get that wish now? Is it going to go back? 
I mean, the downside of that obviously would be the, you know, crime rates and fiscal crisis of the 70s, which which could certainly happen. The upside, of course, is that you do see flight and diminished housing costs um, that might make room for, you know, middle class and working class people to have um, more normal lives in New York for families not to, with three kids to be crowded into tiny, tiny two-bedroom apartments, you know, for people to have um, a little more access to New York. So you think this could actually pull us back from sort of overdone, overwrought gentrification? I, I, I honestly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of prediction, but but I do think that there is a real possibility for that. Alternatively, there's a possibility that the city becomes uh, a more cartoonish, parodic version of what it already is, right? Who could, who's going to be able to afford to stay? You know, the banker, the investment bankers, the private equity people who are somewhat, you know, insulated from these downturns um, and can afford to go to East Hampton the next time a big pandemic comes around. And um, we, we, we certainly might see uh, a more dystopian version of this inequality where you really, really, really just is the very, very, very rich and the struggling unemployed. You know, it, it could certainly go in that direction. I hope it doesn't. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how we get much more dystopian, to be honest, than, than the current right. moment. I mean, I'm just so haunted every time a package is delivered uh, to the front stoop here in my dad's house. Um, every time I do go out to the grocery store and I'm interacting with a clerk, I'm just haunted by this notion that there, there, there's army of people who have to work and are taking enormous personal risks in terms of the possibility of becoming infected so that everyone else can shelter more securely. And the gulf between those two realities is just so wide to me and so haunting. And and I don't know how we look at it and don't make adjustments in this country, in the city and in this country going forward. It, it, it does feel terrible to be you know, relatively safe in your house. And I, I saw an Amazon worker pulling up with his entire family in the in the car, um, probably because he had no childcare and had to be driving around delivering packages. What I mean, what are your thoughts? I I think that it really, really puts it all in such incredible high relief. Um, and it's incredible to have one class of people, right, who are cosseted safe in their homes, trying to stay healthy and thinking about, you know, how they're going to get the best Romano cheese for <laughs> the, um, <laughs> you know, the best whole milk ricotta for their dinner that night and are concentrated on, you know, food and wine and then people who are just risking their lives every day. Oh. Well, I mean, you asked me where I th- like, what my thoughts are on this, sort of sort of yeah. how this plays out. Um, we talked about this some on, on the last episode of the argument, but I don't see a way in which this doesn't um, bolster the appetite for a more generous social safety net. You know, in comparison with many Western countries, our social safety net is not so sturdy. And I think... Um, I think the political receptiveness to doing something about that has got to increase. There's just no, there's just no way that won't happen. I, I worry in the short term. Um, I see a lot of signs of anger out there, anger well beyond the protests in Michigan, which are of a, partic- a particular partisan nature. But I, I see a lot of anger out there 
at the issue we've been talking about for years, income inequality, that um, for some people perhaps has been a little bit abstract, not for most people. I don't think it's remotely abstract for anyone anymore. Um, and I think that is going to infuse and affect our politics uh, in a very, very direct way. Um, exactly what happens, I don't know. But you mentioned childcare, for example. Um, I think what Elizabeth Warren was talking about in terms of uh, much greater government assistance with childcare, I think that's going to fall on much more receptive ears because right now, um, across many classes, in fact, you have parents appreciating what it means to have children underfoot all the time and how that how that complicates right. the work situation. I think you're in that very circumstance yourself, Jeannie. Yeah, right? and you know, I... I feel very, very lucky. I have a job. My husband has a job. Uh, we we have a nice, safe place to be during all this. But it is really hard to, you know, be administering under the best, best, best circumstances, administering to a child doing online school. I have a 10-year-old boy. Um, and then have the day end at 2.45 because there is no supplemental child care. And to be balancing that and work and your anxiety and the child's anxiety is a hard thing. So you have to imagine what it's like, you know, for parents without those resources. A lot of people, a lot of sociologists, um, uh, economists are saying, well, is this a really the moment where we are going to have an opportunity to rebuild so many things that are wrong with our society? You know, again, as you say, the opportunity to have people work from home, and children learning online is going to make us question a lot of um, a lot of how we do the most fundamental things in our lives. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Now, I want to come back to New York City um, since that's what your column focuses on. And we talked uh, a bit earlier about whether this uh, pandemic in the aftermath of it, would the city be grittier or would it in fact be more uniformly gilded? But there's a whole other scenario that a lot of journalism is painting, which is that cities mm -hmm. on the whole, and New York City is one example, are going to sort of wither. Uh, that they're going to become, if not ghost towns, they're going to become shadows of their former selves. And in fact, uh, the Times just on Monday published a business story by J. David Goodman uh, with this headline, which is a quote from someone in the story, I don't think the New York that we left will be back for some years. And in the story, he noted this, half of the hotels in the city are not operating. And with no reliable forecast for when tourists might return, many may stay shut. Nearly the same portion of the city's smallest businesses, some 186,000 shops employing fewer than 10 people, could fail, 
Replacing them could take years. And he didn't even mention restaurants, which, of course, are near and dear to your and my heart uh, because we're big patrons of them. I used to be the restaurant critic of the Times. You used to be a guest at my table quite frequently. Do you think that cities on the whole across the board could end up devastated for quite some time by this and see population retreat? Well, for one thing, you know, again, I am of, um, I am of two minds and I'm going to give you each of those minds right now, share each of my minds. But we, we were seeing already before this an exodus from certain what economists like Richard Florida call the superstar cities, right? Where the rents are just so exorbitant, where the cost of owning a house is so prohibitive. We're talking about, you know, San Francisco, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Boston. Um, That flight is likely to continue with fewer economic opportunities. It is likely to um, dissuade young people out of college from moving to those places because of, there are so few opportunities. So we have that already was happening. And this is certainly in the short term. And I would say over the next few years going to exacerbate that. You know, after any crisis, financial crisis, Sandy, there are lots of think pieces telling us that, the, you know, urbanism is over. Uh, density is terrible, especially in this case. We have to remember what happened to New York City after 9-11. We had fear, tremendous job loss. Ultimately, the city came back in terms of the economy and prospered monumentally, almost unimaginably. Great increase in jobs, great increase in creative class jobs. I mean, we had a tech boom and New York became its own tech center. And we had probably the biggest, surely the biggest escalation in real estate price, um, in the city's modern history. So you really had New York became the superstar city in those years after 9-11. But was that in some measure in response to 9-11 or was that despite 9-11 or did 9-11 in fact have nothing to do with what was maybe a trajectory going on anyway? I mean, I think initially there was a lot of, you know, you can't let the terrorists win ideology and we're going to fight harder and shop harder. Remember Giuliani after 9-11 and it was like, go back, you know, start shopping, go back to the stores. Let's get the consumer economy, you know, going. Um, So I think there was a lot of that. But then I also think that, you know, Mike Bloomberg came in and really had this vision of New York as a luxury product, as a place that was going to draw the international elite of a city. And you've written about this, you know, more beautifully than anyone about the public space, you know, the incredible uh, impact um, and renovation of parkland in New York. And it became a more beautiful city, a more inviting city in many ways, tourism up, 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 up huge driver of the economy. Um, and of course, the downside of to that is that we started to see, you know, also uh, serious inequality and homelessness. But here's, here's the rub. Um, we absolutely made big adjustments in the way we live after 9-11. Uh, the sorts of security lines and the number of places that had security lines, that was a new phenomenon. Yes. At the scale it is now, it was a new phenomenon after 9-11. But it didn't directly affect the way businesses operated uh, in the fashion that social distancing and whatever the next chapter of social distancing is will. If restaurants are allowed to start coming back but only at 30% or only at 50% capacity, 
are they going to even be able to come back when they were operating on fairly thin profit margins already? Same thing for the small shop that's not part of a chain. Um, and one of the scenarios that's been described that, that chills me is that we'll be looking at a cityscape that is just all chains. Right. And that, you know, of course, this city was already, you know, um, besieged by the chain, so to speak. It was already so hard for small businesses to stay afloat. Um, and this certainly seems as though it is the final nail in the coffin of the mom and pop shops, your favorite, you know, pet store guy, your, you know, how do those people sustain themselves unless they own the building? That's always the the secret rub to how anybody stays for years and years is that they're not uh, subject to these crazy escalating rents. If we're going to see reduced rents commercially and residentially, will there be opportunities for that culture to come back and thrive five, six, you know, five, six years from now, let's say. Genia, I mentioned before that part of our long friendship uh, has been set in restaurants. I Yes. Do you miss restaurants right now as much as I do? I miss them so much and I miss how I, what I wouldn't give now to go to a, res a restaurant with no reservations, which always drove me nuts and stand <laughs> in a crowded bar for an hour and a half until I got my table. I mean, my God, you know, um, my kingdom for a long wait at the bar, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, terribly. It was such a huge part of my own social life, your social life. Uh, and the life of New York City. And as we were talking about recently, you and I, you know, we're both real social creatures. And because of the way New York is and, and the small spaces people live in, really major moments of our lives take place in restaurants, right? I don't know where those spaces, what sociologists call third spaces, you know, spaces that are not work or home that are so important. What's going to take that place? I'm not down with the Zoom cocktail. I love you. I'm not having a Zoom cocktail with you. I've been trying. I've been trying the Zoom cocktail route, and it, it really just doesn't work for me. But no, I mean, I, I mentioned restaurants because they are such singular environments. I mean, they're theaters of large celebration and they're theaters of small intimacies. Um, and I mention them not in some privileged sense, but restaurants as an example of, you know, and a metaphor for public places where we can exchange smiles with strangers exchange mm -hmm. handshakes with people we're meeting for the first time. I think right. about that lovely moment when you walk up to a bar and yes, right now it feels even better if it's a crowded bar and I had to really yes. shimmy my way through a scrum of people. Right. And right. you place your order and you have that first interaction with a bartender and you've never oh. met him or her before. And there's right. a, a maybe, maybe you trade witticisms, maybe you trade courtesies. Again, there's a smile that goes both ways. And it's such a tiny thing that kind of greases the wheels of existence and kind of blunts the edges of a day. And that and so many moments like that are gone right now. And I don't right. know about you, but I feel like they've, they've bled some of the color of life in a way that, that just feels awful. Absolutely. It is, um, you know, the monotony of each day with no special treat like that at the end. Don't, don't, have, didn't, you, didn't you sometimes like wake up in the morning, feel a little disoriented and then think, oh, I've got so much work to do. And then you, you remember the plan you have, right? For meeting a friend at dinner and you're suddenly like jump out of bed and get animated. That happens to me. <laughs> what did happen to me? Yeah. It was the light at the end of the tunnel. It was the pot of gold at the other side of the rainbow. The light you know? at the end of the tunnel. 
Yeah. And that has been taken away from us. We talked uh, for a while about some of the kind of big, big strokes of changes, you know, big, big themes and, and, and some of the trend lines that we're worried about or that we're seeing. I want to talk about smaller moments. You are someone who keeps a very close eye on New York City. I know you have a, a, a huge network of fans and readers who email you observations, uh, tell you about things they've seen. Are there some small moments since this pandemic hit that have been particularly moving to you? Yes, absolutely. Many, many. And I would say um, one of the most thoughtful comments from a friend who had left the city and gone to uh, the mountains, she was saying what she really missed about New York, which she was feeling ambivalent about, she's feeling ambivalent about the city before this happened, is the serendipitous encounters on the street. Density gives you contact. And she said, you know, I don't miss the three weeks of texting back and forth to plan dinner, but I miss just seeing you, you know, and our friends, our neighborhood friends, we are parents at the same school, just running into you, you know, in the morning and maybe just like going in to get a coffee quickly. Um, I think that it shows us one of the most beautiful aspects of living in New York is, uh, is the chance encounter. Um, it's those kind of things that people are realizing they miss and they're realizing, you know, that's why I live in New York. You know, it's not because of per se. I don't go to per se. How often <laughs> do I really go to the Met? You know, when was the last? But it's that. It's the human capital. I mean, I think the mythology of New York, its long history of being one of the most interesting cities in the world, no matter what, is always going to attract ambitious, creative super um, fascinating people. That's not going to change. You know, it'll take time to come back, but that won't change. And the other thing is we are seeing, um, you know, how much cleaner and fresher the city feels with with less uh, car traffic, obviously. Um, I think there are going to be new ways we think about the city's um, public spaces and just, you know, car travel. And I think we're going to rethink that. Virginia, before I let you go, and of course, you know, I would like to never let you go. <laughs> We'd all like to hear a recommendation from you. Usually at the end of each podcast, one of our hosts recommends something to help take our mind off the news. But I understand that you want to direct us to a book that you once showcased in the big city book club that you ran for several years, a New York focused novel, right? That has bearing on this moment. Yeah. And I've been thinking about it again, because the, the novelist is the son of the bartender we were referencing earlier who died of COVID recently. Uh, it's a novel called Small Mercies. The novelist is Eddie Joyce, and it's a beautiful, sprawling uh, family saga about a family in Staten Island in the aftermath of 9-11, and it's about the reverberations of death and crisis. And if, if I read this right now, would it make me feel better about what we're going through and what might be on the far side? I think that it shows us that we, you know, that, that there is you know, redemption and all this complexity that we are um, loyal to the ones we love um, and that New York is really a magical place, ultimately. Genia, thank you so, so much. Thank you. That's our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. 
Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, Michele Teodori, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. In my weekly newsletter, and I yeah. do a New York Times week, weekly yeah. newsletter, um, I mentioned your 85th birthday. Oh. And into the newsletter inbox, you know, the newsletter accepts emails, a bunch of people, I guess, from your past oh, who, must, who must subscribe to my newsletter, a oh. bunch of them. Uh, this is, do you remember Judy and Stan Sternberg? Oh, sure. Please what, what, wish your father a happy birthday and give him a kiss or elbow tap from Judy and Stan Sternberg. Elbow tap being pandemic-approved affection. You also have one from um, Marilyn Markowitz. She says of you, what a gentleman and a really good bridge player. (laughs) (laughs) Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.